0: Welcome to The Creator State, where we share stories of social innovation and entrepreneurship for movers, shakers, creators, and changemakers. Each episode will celebrate success and failure, ingenuity, and the endless pursuit of knowledge. From education to implementation, join us as we explore everything in between. The Creator State. Tom Lutz knows a lot about writing. He writes about travel. He's written books about crying, nervousness, and even about doing nothing. His works have received numerous accolades, including the American Book Award, and have appeared on New York Times and Los Angeles Times bestseller lists. Tom is the founding editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books, known as LARB, founder of the LARB Radio Hour, the LARB Quarterly Journal, the LARB USC Publishing Workshop, and LARB Books. At UC Riverside, Tom is a distinguished professor and chair of the Department of Creative Writing, as well as the director of Writers Week, the longest-running free literary event in California. Tune in to hear Tom talk with UCR Magazine editor Omar Shamoud about his fiction debut, "Born Slippy," and about writing, of course.
1: Welcome to the Creator State. So, I just wanted to start off by by just mentioning you have a rather—I think it's okay to say—you have a rather eclectic portfolio of writing.
2: I think that that's fine to say. Yes.
1: <laughs> You've got uh, a book of your travel writings. You've got a book about crying, mm-hmm. um, a book about nervousness. Um, and now you've written your first – those are all nonfiction works. And now yes. you've written your first novel. So what led you to write
2: a novel? I have been a novelist all my life in my own mind. I was. I always thought I was going to be a novelist. I wanted to be a novelist. And I, I realized um, fairly early on that uh, I needed a day job if I was going to be a novelist. And the day job was as an English professor. And that – took me down the road of writing my dissertation, which became my first book, which is the book about nervousness, and writing a couple of other academic books um, and then wrote a couple of other books and then wrote a couple of travel books. and all the time, the novel was the thing I was trying to do. I was just procrastinating for roughly 40 years. <laughs> I finally got around to it.
1: I think we can all relate. So how did you come up with the idea for this novel?
2: I met a guy who monologued the way Dimitri, the, the character in my book, did about his daring do about his wild life and, uh, and was exactly like Dimitri. He was a very, very happy-go-lucky sociopath. I mean he was just a bad guy and he told these stories as if of course everybody would appreciate the, the funny nature. Of his terrible behavior, and uh, and I got fascinated by that voice, and and so the, the book kind of came out of, of this this character that started as a real person, and then of course what happens when you're writing fiction is that the you do in in you know people are made up of their experiences, people are constructed by their interactions with other people, and um, and that's what happens to the characters in your book. You put them in an, you kind of throw them up against another character, and they become slightly different. So uh, he's now long divorced from that original model, but uh, that, that guy started the whole thing.
1: And uh, how long has this particular idea been gestating?
2: I think it was roughly 10 years wow. uh, since I since first put him down on paper.
1: And did you find the creative process different uh, in writing a novel uh, compared to your other
2: works? Yeah, it's much more fun. It is. Uh, it's by far the most fun. <laughs> Why is that? I've ever had. I, you know, the the when you're when you're writing nonfiction, um, I mean, the travel books. The two travel books are a little bit different. Uh, they they're also they were also a lot of fun to write. But the when you're writing research nonfiction, which was what most of my other work was, you're really trying to figure out how to present information to people, and you're trying to figure out how to make it entertaining, make it make it fun, make it. Uh, uh, intellectually exciting how to you know you're trying to have all sorts of re- responses from your audience, but it's a kind of it's a the task is rhetorical and so I'm kind of figuring out how rhetorically to to do what I need to do for the book uh, with fiction it's a little bit like daydreaming you're just daydreaming while your fingers are moving on the keyboard you get into a, a a very interesting fugue state. And that is not entirely different in, in nonfiction. You you're also you can get while you're writing a particular passage or a particular uh, especially if it's narrative history as some of my stuff was, you can get in a similar state. But in the in the fictional state, the characters start to do things that surprise you. They actually I mean my, my wife got a little peeved at me because she was writing a book at the same time and she was struggling through it and I would be typing and I would just burst out laughing because Dimitri would say something that cracked me up. It didn't seem like I was writing what he was saying. He just said it. Uh, I watched him say it. I was typing it down as he said it. Um, uh, but that, that kind of sense of uh, – it's a cross between writing and watching a TV show or something. It's a it's a very interesting psychological process.
1: Mm-hmm. And is the person that Dimitri is based on? Are you still in touch with this person? Yeah. And what do they have? They read the book. Yeah. What do they think? It's
2: excellent, Tommy. <laughs> 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 and of course, the, the the character in the book, uh, he recognizes a bit of himself in it. Yeah. But of but of course, the character in the book is. Ends up murdering quite a few people. So that it's uh he did as far as I know, the original did not murder anyone. At so least, um, but he's, so he's told you. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, anyway, so so travel is something that that uh, it's a theme that cons- consistently pops up in your work, and and you've actually written mm-hmm. quite extensively about it. Where did that uh, drive to travel come from?
2: I uh, I. It started when I was a kid. I was, I was always kind of getting in trouble for going too far from the house, uh, from wandering away as, a, as, a, as a, even a small child. And uh, I'm, I've just been – I've wanted to go elsewhere. Um, I, I wrote an essay recently um, about my early reading experiences and one of them was The Black Stallion. And I just thought that kid, he goes to Arabia. I mean it wasn't Saudi Arabia or anything. It was just like kind of a fake country where it goes to Arabia and I'm thinking, I want to go to Arabia. I wanted to get a horse too but I wanted to go to Arabia and uh, and so all um, – all, all since uh, since I was a kid, I wanted to. And As, as a young – you know, as an 18-year-old, 20-year-old, 22-year-old, I would stick my finger out um, and hitchhike and just go wherever the car was going. Uh, I would hop on freight trains and I had no idea where they were headed. Um, and ride the freight train until it stopped and get off and wander around and then get back on another train and see where that was going so that kind of sense of of, of uh, wanting to wanting to see the wide world of uh, looking for adventure looking for the new looking looking to broaden my horizon uh, it's just a I don't know it's a it's a it's a pathology, I assume. I, I, I really do it way too much, um, and uh, I think it's uh, just who I am.
1: So, how often are you traveling throughout the year? Would you say
2: uh, I'm, tra- I'm traveling as much as I can? And now, you know, my kids are all grown and gone, and uh, and I and I have the kind of job, which is an academic job, where now that I'm writing travel books, every trip is a research trip um because i do write about everywhere i go so it's kind of now integrated into my professional life and i um i'm up to 139 countries i mean who's counting besides you, but <laughs> clearly you are yeah. <laughs> yeah. so yeah. I,
1: i'm curious um about the way you observe and and kind of record your experiences because um, clearly they they influence your work mm-hmm. so um do you have a notepad with you at all times? How are, and how have your powers of observation kind of matured as you as you travel? I
2: I, I do a, I do a few things. One is I take a lot of pictures, and um, my fa- my favorite thing to do um, is to take portraits. And with the with the advent of the digital camera, picture taking is a very different kind of social activity, because you can take a picture of someone, you can show them the picture. And they – you can have a uh, – even if there's no language in common, you can have a kind of conversation, gestural conversation about it and if they don't like it, they, you know, they'll, they'll wave it off and you can take another one and you show them that one. I had this woman. She was in a market in uh, Kyrgyzstan, in Osh, Kyrgyzstan. She was selling vegetables. Um, she was maybe 75 years old and i motioned whether it was okay to take a picture she said yes yeah. so i took the and she kind of stuck her chin up a little bit and i took the picture and she looked at it and she, she waved her finger no and i went back and 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 set up to take another one and she stuck her chin a little bit higher and i took that and i showed it to her she said, no waved the finger again came back took a third one by now, her chin was like – she looked like Mussolini. You know, Her chin was way up in the air. Took, took a picture. No, one more. Now she was just like a comically exaggerated chin in the air. And I took that one and she looked at it and she went, yep, that's good. <laughs> and so that's the one that's on my website. Uh, I, have a, I have a website with photographs called ontheroofoftheworld.com. And uh, – and the, and it's a it's a great picture, and you can see that there's some joy in her face. I mean, we, we're we're having fun, and it's a way of having a an interpersonal relationship, a little kind of accidental intimacy while you're on the road. Um, that is made available by the fact of the digital camera's readout.
1: So um, you clearly have a lot of uh, interests uh, as evidenced by your work. So how do you decide what to pursue as an actual book?
2: Oh, that's an interesting question. I decide to write a lot of books. Many are called and few choose me. Like eventually one of them them starts to take off a little bit and I stay with it. Uh, I've always got four or five going at any given time. And that's why my, my publication history is a little odd. There will be a gap of, of seven or eight years and then there will be two books in the same year and that kind of thing. So it's, a, I, I, it's because I'm always working on several at the same time. And part of that is um, there's something very satisfying for me about what I call productive procrastination. Like, I'm really supposed to be finishing book A, and when, when I have to finish book A, and book A is giving me a little bit of trouble, I go work on book B, and it feels like I'm playing hooky. It feels like I'm, like, taking the day off. It feels like freedom. And so I get a lot of work done on book B. And then book B is almost done, but I'm having a little trouble figuring out what the ending is. And so I play hooky on it with book C. And, you know, it's just kind of like keep, keep moving from project to project. And in a way that saves me from one of the main perils of, of writing is that that moment when you get stuck. I'm never stuck. I just move on to the next to the next project and work on that. Um and so it's kind of keeps me keeps me uh kind of f- feeling like I'm moving forward even if I'm not moving forward on the thing I'm supposed to be moving forward on.
1: Right. So some people clean the house to procrastinate. Yes, exactly. You write another book.
2: Yes, <laughs> and, you, and you can tell that that's my choice by how dirty my house is. <laughs>
1: Fair enough. Um, so uh, we are at a university. You're the chair of a department at a university. What role has education uh, played in your life? And I'm particularly interested in your role. Perhaps you can talk about your, your role um, as a fellow at the L.A. Institute of Humanities. Perhaps that
2: oh, influences Interesting. That. Yeah, those are, those are kind of two separate questions. Um, the, the teaching part of it, I mean, I think that even though I, I talked about my travel bug as a, as a, as a kind of a form of pathology – um, it's just something I can't help but do. It also has a, an intellectual justification. I do think that um, literature is – as a field – is at its best an attempt to get at the full complexity of the world in a way that no specific discipline can do. The biologists can tell us a lot about the the living world. The chemists can tell us a lot about the way the living world functions at a cellular level. The the physicists can tell us a lot about the origins of the universe. Um, the sociologists can tell us a lot about social forces. Psychologists about so- psychological forces. But the, I think of the novel, in particular, but. Everything that's novelistic, and there's there's novelistic nonfiction, there's novelistic poetry. Everything that the the novel is the queen of the sciences. The novel is the most comprehensive form of human understanding ever developed, and the best of literature transcends all national boundaries, all cultural boundaries, and 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 is available. Um, I talk about this as as cosmopolitanism in one of one of my. Uh, literary theory books, um, and that 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 kind of knowledge of the world, of the widest possible world, is the best preparation and context for doing the work I do as a as a scholar, and doing the work I do as a creative writer. So, uh, it's all part of the of the same package. The teaching is, I think, has been enhanced a lot by the travel. Um, Travel has been enhanced by the teaching. Um, the writing has been enhanced by the travel and the teaching, um, and and vice versa. So, it's all part of the same thing. The Los Angeles Institute for the Humanities is a is a group that's um, it's it's based at uh, USC, and it's people from uh, various colleges and universities around uh, uh, Southern California, um, but also artists and photographers and um, dancers and and writers. Um, uh, from Southern California as well, it's a group that gets together once a month and has a has a has a talk and a lunch and a and uh, sometimes field trips to museums and this and for docent talks and that kind of thing. So it's a it's a uh, it's a way in which um, the community gets a little bit larger than the community at UC Riverside, um, and so uh, it's an, or the community at USC, right? So it's a it's a way that. Um, uh, that the that the local community can work together, can think together, um, can create together.
1: So, given all that context uh, you just talked about, um, are you thinking about that when you when you sit down and and write a novel, um, or are you just thinking about the story and and how one thing leads to the next and how one character develops? And-
2: yeah, I think that the you know when you're when you're uh, having that kind of fun that I was talking about earlier, when you're really just letting the characters do what they want. Um, that happens a little willy-nilly. That's a kind of uh, that's you let your imagination go a little bit and you you follow it where it takes you. That's you know that's a part of a, writing a novel. The second part is figuring out what you have then and where what wh- how you want to shape that and where 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 it needs to go from there. And at that point, a lot of these kind of concerns about what it means that these characters are doing what they're doing um, and how that fits into a, a more global understanding of the, of the world um, comes in. So Dimitri is a, you know, classic charming sociopath. I think that um, there's no accident that I was trying to figure this guy out um, uh, and finished figuring this guy out uh, as we have a president who is a, um, for some people charming. Uh, sociopath as well, so it's it's not that's not an accident. the 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 fact that he is part of he's a he's an investment banker in Asia. At one point, he says uh, to the other character, "You know, uh, Frankie, I and please apologize for my terrible English accent, but I can't think of him except speak, speaking in this English accent." He says, "I I realize that without an his more effort." I could be rather than a capitalist pig. I could be an imperialist pig, um, and so he goes to Asia to be a, a finance banker and that kind of global capital and how it works. He also ends up being a, a money launderer to the worst, you know, to Robert Mugabe, to the Khmer Rouge um, generals that are still in power in, in Cambodia, to the to uh, you know the worst of the worst. Frank asks him if he's also Putin's banker, and he says, "Oh no, they do it all in house," you know if they if, if they need some other work done, they just seize another bank, you know. Just, so that's just but he's in the middle of the worst aspects of global capitalism. So that kind of sense of a responsibility to represent the world goes beyond letting the characters do whatever they want and, and, and following them around.
1: Very interesting. So um, one of your other roles uh, is as founding editor and publisher of the L.A. Review of Books. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that and, and how that has evolved and, and your role with, with the site now?
2: Yeah. Uh, the L.A. Review of Books, um, I, I was offered um, the editorship of a, of a magazine, uh, the editor uh, who had been running it, a literary quarterly, a classic literary quarterly, and the editor who was running it was wanted to retire, wanted somebody to replace him. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. I just published something with him and he liked my work and he asked me if I would be interested. And I said uh, I took it to the faculty here, uh, to my faculty. There were 12 of us then in creative writing and I thought, well, it's a quarterly. If we each did one issue, um, you know, we'd, nobody, nobody had to take on the whole job but we could do one issue every three years um, and rotate through. And it would be good for the department. It would be good for the students. It would be good for the graduate students. It would be good for the university. So maybe we should do that. And Chris Abani, who was still on the faculty in fiction at that point, said, "Well, I don't know why you would you would take a used journal when you can get a new one for free." He said, "Because you just make your own journal. It's not you're like you don't have to buy anything. Especially if it's online, you just." Set up a website and and there you go. He said, the, you know, the best thing you're going to get from them is a subscriber list of 2,000 people. If you can't get 2,000 people to read you, why bother? So I thought, well, that's interesting. If I was going to edit a journal, if I was going to work on a on a, on a publication, what, what should it be? Maybe the world doesn't need another quarterly, literary quarterly. Maybe we have enough of them. Um, and so what do we need? And it was right when all of the book reviews um, – the, New York, the Boston Globe book review shut down, the Los Angeles Times book review shut down, the Denver paper, Miami paper, Chicago paper, all of them and a lot of them I had been writing for. I had been writing reviews for through the years. Uh, they, all, they all just closed their doors. They couldn't – Right. they were no longer – they always lost money for newspapers. They were a kind of prestige part of the newspaper. And as businessmen took over the newspapers and newspapers cut back because of the digital revolution, the book reviews were some of the first things to go. I learned about literary culture from reading the Sunday Supplement book reviews. That's where – that was my introduction to it. So I thought, well, people should continue – should still have that as a resource. Um, Literary culture needs that review process in the ecology. I should do something to – Replace that kind of invent the book review of the future, and so I went back to my colleagues and I said, "What do you think? Do uh, you, know, you think we should do this instead?" And they all said, "Yes, we should do that." It turned out they meant, "Yes, you should do that." Um, <laughs> and uh, some, a number of my colleagues have you know done uh, pieces for us and that kind of thing, but it, it turned out to be that you know that it was it was just me really that wanted to do it, so I so I did it. So tell
1: us a little bit about um, the Review of Books uh, Publishing Workshop.
2: This is the one of the, our latest uh, endeavors. Um, the, the Los Angeles Review of Books is both a book review and a kind of ongoing nonprofit literary organization. And we have kept figuring out new things to do in part because, you know, the – this it's a nonprofit corporation, um, but it works just like any other company in that um, you either kind of grow or you stagnate, and um, and so we've been growing and we've been growing by multiplying the kinds of things we do. We added a radio show, the Larb Radio Hour, uh, added podcasts, added a channels um, uh, project where we have. A religious studies channel and a and uh, a uh, Southeast Asia diaspora studies channel and a cha- podcast review channel and all sorts of um, other uh, websites that we that we house and and support um, and the latest and we started a quarterly journal actually a quarterly literary journal um, uh, and one of the latest uh, the two latest ones are we started a book publishing wing. Um, LARB Books is publishing a number of different series, among them LARB Libros, which uh, um, Alex Espinoza, who's our latest addition to our faculty at uh, in creative writing, is running a contest A Tomas Rivera. Uh, he's the Tomas Rivera chair and he's writing, running a Tomas Rivera um, contest for first book by a uh, young Latinx writer. Not necessarily young. Latinx writer, first book by a Latinx writer. So that contest is part of the publishing program. And then we started a publishing workshop as well. Uh, there is a famous publishing workshop on the East Coast. It's the Columbia Publishing Course. And it's one of the main feeders into the publishing industry. If you want to get into the industry, you want to be an editor, you want to you you publish books, you go to the Columbia Publishing Course. It's a lot of Ivy League students. It is, and, and publishing, um, most people I think know already, publishing is a notoriously homogenous um, industry. It's 82% white. Um, and the Columbia Publishing Course is 85% white. So they're not doing anything to help um, that, uh, that problem. And, you know, Tony Morrison was an, was an editor. And what she was – what she found as an editor at uh, one of the big houses in New York was that she just wasn't getting the books that she wanted to publish submitted to her and she wasn't having any luck um, kind of getting them through the publishing process. So she became a writer herself in part as a response to what she was seeing in publishing. So what we wanted to do was uh, try to diversify the pipeline into the publishing industry. Um, by starting our own publishing course, and running it pretty much the same way—that is, we have professionals from every kind, every part of the publishing world, big houses in New York, editors at big houses, publicists from big houses, agents who are now even more important to the process of getting books from manuscript into the into the into the bookstores, um, distribution people. Um, you know every single part, book design, uh, everything, um, and uh, and so people get a kind of introduction to the course, and they get a kind of stamp on their passport in to the country of publishing as well. So um, and we have we raise money so that we can give people free tuition, so that people can attend the publishing workshop regardless of their ability to pay for it. Uh, these courses cost between three and five thousand dollars in tuition plus room and board, of course. Um, so they're expensive, which is another reason why publishing has remained so <laughs> homogenous. And, uh, and so we we uh, have raised money so that we – 80 percent of the people that go to the publishing workshop, the LARB publishing workshop, get some kind of financial aid and 50 percent um, get uh, full, uh, full rides. And 50 percent of the people that go to the workshop are um, – uh, Non-white, um, so it's a uh, it's and it's been a, gr- a great success. We're in our we're, we're starting our fourth year this year. You um, see, our students and um, should should apply, um, and, uh, and 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 uh, we uh, and if they can't afford to pay for it themselves, we will figure out a way to pay for it for them. So it's a, it's a, I think in a way the most important thing that Larb has done. Larb is now a A very large operation I have a big board of directors um, that supports about thirty percent of what we do um, we get grants we have uh, we have a, a full- time staff of seven a part-time staff of another six or seven and uh, still a lot of volunteers um, on the staff like i'm I'm a volunteer um, uh, the volunteer editor in chief um, and so it's a it's a it's a a, a group of maybe 50, 60 people altogether who are, are working on it. And um, and we all, some people are very focused on the radio show. Some people are very focused on the quarterly journal. But, um, but we all have a sense that this is the most important thing that we've, we've, we've put together so far.
1: Fantastic. And, and you've also uh, got Writers Week coming up again. Um, that's a, been a great event for UCR and, and the community. Uh, what has that meant to you? And, and what should we look forward to this year?
2: The uh, Writers' Week, as as you know, is the oldest uh, continuous free literary event on on the West Coast. It is uh, it is a um, it's a it's a kind of venerable and an interesting institution. It's always has a little bit of the stamp of the person who happens to be directing it because you all of my colleagues will give me suggestions of people that they'd like to see come in um, each year then the, so some some of it comes from that but it's a it's a it's a big juggling act um, we have twenty three or four people this year I think and um, and uh, to kind of figure out how to get them all to come to Riverside in one week and figure out where the money's going to come from to do that and um, how to get them all arranged uh, it's a it's a it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of administrative juggling, so um, that means that that I end up making a lot of the decisions um, by fiat, as did Chris Buckley when he was running it before me, as did Susan Strait who was running it before before Chris, um, and uh, and so uh, we we all kind of run it the way we. Think it should be run. In my case, I've always liked to have uh, a combination of some really well-known people, some 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 of the most important people in their genres and fields, uh, some people that are mid-career, and some people that are just starting out. We always have an alumni reader. We always have um, uh, you know people that are on their first book, um, uh, and and uh, because. Um, UCR is a majority minority um, institution I always thought Writers Week should be a majority minority um, writing festival as well which most of them are not and have not been so um, so that's been one of my one of my goals and it's a very easily reachable goal there's so much great writing out there so um, so we we've um, We've managed to do that successfully for about six years. I think this is the sixth, sixth time I've done it. The sixth and last time um, for me. Now, let's get
0: into the creator's state of mind. In each episode, we ask our guests to share what's been on their minds, something they can't stop thinking about, a new challenge they're facing, or what's inspired them into action recently. We call it the creator state of mind. The,
2: the thing that's inspiredly inspired me most recently is that I'm coming towards the end of my career as an academic. I'm I'm, I'm turning sixty seven next month. That um, that is I think was the life expectancy in the year I was born for a man. So <laughs> now I'm in bonus bonus rounds, and uh, and. You know, there's there's a, a freedom that comes with kind of figuring. You know, I'm I'm done climbing ladders. I'm done getting ahead. I'm done. I'm done with all of that. I am doing exactly what I want to do, uh, moment by moment. And um, and that is, I find, has been very inspiring. So I am writing faster and better than I ever have. Uh, and. I'm um, having more fun with it than I've ever had, and so there's something about um, hitting this age that has been a source of inspiration. Interesting.
1: The end has kind of created a new, a new beginning for your for your writing. It sounds
2: like. Yeah, yeah. It, I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm I, I've i just published this novel, of course. Um, it came out a week ago. The next book is um, now going into the catalog for the fall uh, at Columbia University Press, and that's a. That book's finished, um, and I'm about to finish the third travel book um, within the next month or so, and I've got four more going. So, um, yeah, I'm just kind of uh, on a on a tear, and it's partly the this this sense of uh, I don't care anymore. I don't care what people think of them. I don't care if they do well. I don't care if anybody likes them. I'm just. Um, in a, in, a, in a sense being an artist uh, a full artist for the first time in my life
1: fantastic so what's something you can't stop thinking about
2: right now climate change I mean yeah. I have I have children I have grandchildren I have I I um, I'm, I I uh, I think this is the uh, this is the crisis issue of our time
1: and uh, have your travels have, what have you witnessed that has shocked or changed your your life based on your travels and witnessing climate. Cl- climate. Yeah,
2: the, the the there are there are a few things. I mean, I do talk to people about it uh, wherever I go now. Um, and I, I was just I just did a, a trip where where I went across the island chain at the top of the South uh, the Pacific Islands. So from Guam to Hawaii, and stopped in in the in Micronesia, in the in the Marshall Islands, and. Um, number number of other islands in between, and um, and in those these are these are little tiny spits of land that are sticking up out of the ocean. Um, in one of the airports, you know, when you're landing in the airport, if you're ever watching the statistics on your screen uh, that tells you how fast you're going and what how, what your altitude is and everything, when we landed, we were at one foot. We we're literally at one foot. <laughs> we were one foot above sea level at the airport. Uh, which means, if the sea rises to one foot, they don't have an airport anymore. Um, and so, uh, the the um, I asked people in those islands, "Are you know? Have you noticed the sea? You know, the the sea change because of climate change?" And about a third of the people said, um, uh, "No, they hadn't noticed anything." About a third of the people I talked to said yeah it's definitely going up i've def- you can definitely see that it's going up and about a third of the people said yeah it's definitely going down you can see that it's going down right so there's a the this kind of disconnect between people's experience if it's the hottest summer they've they've experienced they they find climate change to be a problem if it's a cold winter they think climate change is a hoax, and so there's a there's a, so talking to people around the around the world has been been part of it. I'm I'm working on a project on the aridity line. The the there's a there's a geographers talk about a line above or below which um, there's not enough rainfall to support life, and. That line, um, if you look, so the Sahara, for instance, is a, uh, is a g- great example. So there's a line at the bottom, a little bit of a line at th- uh, in parts of the top. The, the Mediterranean is the line at some places. But the, the, if you map the hot spots of global conflict on the globe, along with the aridity lines, you'll see an enormous number of the hot spots are on the aridity line itself. So Boko Haram is not all over Nigeria. It's on the aridity line in Nigeria. Um, the, the ISIS is an aridity line phenomenon. Israel, in a sense, built an, an aridity line around itself by irrigating the desert. Um, so there's a, there's, a, uh, the, there, there's a long, long war between Peru and Ecuador. That's on a desert, right? So there's a there's a it makes sense. Wars tend to be resource wars. That is war over resources. Water is the primary resource, and so it makes sense that there's all of this conflict around the original. line. So I'm while I'm on my sabbatical, um, which is next year, um, I'm going to be uh, actually going around the Sahara and interviewing people about. Um, about the uh, relationship between water resources and 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 violence. Hmm. All right.
1: Um, well, you talked about some new freedoms uh, you're experiencing. Um, are there any new challenges you're facing at the moment?
2: Um. <laughs> uh, no. Wow, that's good. No, <laughs> good for you. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, I mean, it, 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 it in the sense that you mean it, which I think, which is that is, is there something in my way?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I I suppose, yeah,
2: yeah, but no, I mean, the 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 challenge, the challenge uh, when you're writing, you're you're challenging yourself, right? I mean, uh, it's. I, I was talking about the relationship between writing fiction and and uh, and watching TV. You know that it feels like you're watching this the thing unfold, but it's actually a little bit harder than watching TV. And that's because the challenge is actually making some good sentences uh, as you go along. And uh, and so so in that sense, yeah, the challenges that I have are the challenges that I've always had, which is the, the challenge of doing good work. Um, and but that challenge is always the same. That's always the same. It just never changes. It never gets particularly harder or easier. I find, um, um, but you know, I've I'm uh, I have a great job. I have a I have a great income. I have a great family. I have a great um, support system. I mean, I'm I'm uh, among the most privileged people in the universe, and uh, and so no, I have no real challenges. I just have opportunities.
0: It is always a valuable learning opportunity to take time to reflect. At the end of each interview, we like to ask our guests this. In hindsight, what is something you wish you would have known when you were starting out?
2: I wish I knew life was this short. I guess that would have been a good thing to know. And basically, I wish I knew everything I know now, back then. There are people who come out come out into the world as young adults really kind of cognizant of their own strengths and their own, their own foibles, I suppose, but their own strengths and their own, you know, where they want to go and what they want to do. You know, you think of somebody like uh, Barack Obama, you know, he was, he came out as a young man and really did an enormous amount of stuff right away on it. I, I spent a, a lot of time, you know, I didn't go to college until I was in my late 20s. Because I was a bit of an idiot. I was a bit of a numbskull. I was wandering around smoking pot and doing doing nothing, um, which is why that's one of my, the books that I've wrote on the history of doing nothing and, uh, and I, I really did not figure out how to be a productive person uh, until I was 35 or, or, or so 40 maybe even that I really got got going. so um, and that was you know partly, Kind of working through my stupid—I won't say the word, but you know, you know the word I would use there—and uh, and, you know, it was like figuring out, figuring out how to how to be a, a, a good, decent, reasonable, productive person. It took me longer than it probably should have. If I knew then what I know now, I think that process could have been speeded up.
1: You managed to turn being unproductive into a very productive pursuit. Congratulations (laughs) on that. Thanks.
2: Um,
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: You bet. Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: In our next episode of The Creator State, we're at the Los Angeles Zoo and Botanical Gardens with UCR alumna Denise Verrett who will share about her path to becoming the first African-American woman to lead a major U.S. zoo. Thanks for listening. Find more information about our guests at creatorstate.com. There's a team creating this podcast. Help us out by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And while you're there, leave us a review. Our producer for this show is Jennifer Merritt, with audio and editing by Kevin Williams. Digital strategy by Kelly McGrail and Madeleine Adamo. And designed by Chrissy Danforth, Denise Wolfe, Brad Rowe, and creative director Louise Sands. Special thanks to Stan Lim, Omar Shammut, Jessica Weber, and Christy Zwicky. This show is brought to you by the University of California, Riverside. I'm Rick Kirby Hines. Thank you for listening to The Creator State.